Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 31 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajima, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. A few notes before we get started. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check us out at authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I hope you'll become a patron for only $2 a month at Patreon. That's www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash Natasha Bajma. It's good to be back after a month break. Thanks for your patience. I'm hoping to switch gears a bit for the next few months and focus on some different topics um, besides nuclear weapons. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I do regret to inform you that I will not be producing the Project Echo podcast as planned. I'd already recorded the intro and outro, finished the graphics, but then I realized that I need to prioritize other things at this time. Very sorry about that. I haven't been able to monetize the authors of Mass Destruction podcast yet. That means I still pay money to produce each episode, and of course my time is completely free. I love podcasting, and that's why I'm here, and I will continue to be here. Um, but until I actually can bring in money uh, for my time and costs, um, it's difficult for me to start up something um, taking more time from other things that actually do make money. I am wrapping up my fourth novel, Rescind Order. It's due to my editor on February 1, so deadline is ticking. Um, as my next project, I'll be writing a dark comedy stage play based on the themes in the novel, Artificial Intelligence and Nuclear Weapons, Really excited about this. I'm planning a Kickstarter campaign to fund the initial stage of production, which I hope will be an audio play. So here's the theme, audio. Um, my headline for this week is a doozy. Um, very troubling article. The secretive company that might end privacy as we know it, published in the New York Times on January 18. If you've listened to this podcast for some time and also my Bionic Bug podcast, you know that one of my soapboxes is... The data that we're putting out on the internet and the potential for certain actors to surveil us with this information. Um, this is something I've been following very closely for the last few years. Um, this particular development is extremely troubling, but not unanticipated. A startup company called Clearview AI has invented a tool that puts the final nail in the coffin of our anonymity. Um, basically, what you do with this tool is you take a picture of a person, any person, you upload it and you get to see public photos of that person along with links to where those photos appeared. So basically Clearview AI has a database of billions of images. Where did it get them from? Yes, you know the answer to this question. They scraped them from Facebook, YouTube, all sorts of other popular apps where we post our photos. Yes, so we have been enabling this. What does this mean? What this means is that wherever your face is recorded, uh, it unlocks everything about who you are now through this tool. And this has occurred because we, including policymakers, 
um, have largely stood by and watched our privacy erode, and we willingly offered companies and third parties unlimited information about us. I am also guilty. I'm a guilty party. Maybe I've just kind of surrendered to the inevitability of it all. In any event, if you think that we don't have Big Brother coming, Big Brother is here to soon here to be here, and it's not going to be the government, folks. It's going to be private companies and third parties, and I don't know if I feel comfortable about that. So just guess who's using the tool. Yes, you know the answer to this one too. Law enforcement authorities, they love this tool. Of course they do. But actually, I, I don't know how the tool works. You could probably go and pay for it. Anybody who could pay for it then could use the tool. So anybody who were looking to identify random people on the street and find out everything about them would be using the tool. The company intends to pair its app with augmented reality glasses. What does this mean? You put on a pair of glasses and you walk down the street and basically it looks at all the faces of the people that you pass by and you get to know everything about them. Their name, their address, social network, their employer. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the world I want to live in, but it is coming, people. And so while your privacy is being stripped away, this company operates in the dark, shrouded in secrecy. The law allows them to exist. The law allows them to do what they're doing. And, um, you know, it's, it's ironic because as a nation, we're afraid of the potential of artificial intelligence powering autonomous weapon systems, the Terminator. But before we get there, we're going to lose ourselves to the data issue. And if you're interested, I wrote an essay on the risks posed by AI as depicted in pop culture. And I've warned about the data monster. I will post a link to that article in the show notes. All right, we need to wake up, people. We need to wake up from our slumber and do something about this before it's too late. But it may already be too late. On that cheery note, let's go to a fun interview on nanotechnology where I talk to Dr. Margaret Kozal about science enabling invisibility cloaks and night vision in rats, and we also talk about the truth about gray goo. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. I'm here with Dr. Margaret Kozal. She's an associate professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. She has a PhD in chemistry, and in her research, she explores the relationships among technology, strategy, and governance, focusing on reducing the threats of weapons of mass destruction and understanding the role of emerging technologies for security. She has recently published a book about the benefits and risks of nanotechnology called Nanotechnology for Chemical and Biological Defense. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here from Atlanta. Yay. So you've had this awesome, prestigious career on weapons of mass destruction and national security issues, and I'm sure it was a long time ago, but I'm curious, you know, how did you go from a PhD in chemistry to getting into the field of weapons of mass destruction? So it's a very circuitous route, um, but I will try to give you the uh, Cliff Notes version of it. I, um, at, as I was finishing up my PhD, some colleagues in my research group, we got together and we put together a startup company. And part of what we were doing, or what, particularly what I was doing, was developing sensors for detection of chemical agents, detection of biological agents, detection of explosives. Uh, well, this company, one, I became the person who was doing a lot of the grant writing for this, you know, entrepreneurial endeavor. And in that, you know, sophomoric or freshly minted PhD wisdom, you know, <laughs> read, read great sarcasm. Um, 
I was like, well, why does the NIH, National Institutes of Health, want to fund this? Why is the Department of Defense funding that when, you know, I think that I know what they should fund? Um, so that was one <laughs> part of it. Another part of it was while living in Illinois was fantastic, I was getting tired of the winters and I was getting tired of the lack of geography. So I ended up, um, and the company was changing, so I ended up being in a position where I was 29, got bought out of my first company, and I'm like, hey, what do I want to go do? Um, I've got this background in science. I've been always been very interested in international affairs. I used to call myself an unauthorized armchair arms control wonk. <laughs> I think I'm authorized now. Um, <laughs> You know, so it was, let me look at what's out there. And ultimately, what I wanted to do was get back to sort of what I am doing now, which is a faculty position doing research, pushing back the bounds of knowledge at the intersection of cutting edge science and technology with international security issues. That is so fascinating. I had no idea that you were part of a startup company. That's, uh, I'm starting up my company right now. So um, it's an adventure. It is an adventure. So I am so excited to talk about nanotechnology throughout this podcast. We've been talking about different technologies, nuclear weapons. We've been talking about artificial intelligence, biotechnology, and this is our first ever podcast episode on nanotechnology. So super excited. But our audience is probably wondering, what is nanotechnology? So tell us, what is it? So nanotechnology is technology, it's stuff, it's when you are working at nanometer scale. So think of a meter, about a yardstick, we're going to go down to a millionth of that, approximately a little bit up, a little bit down. So when you get down to the nanometer scale, the macroscopic properties that we are used to living in change. And there are unique properties that molecules or materials will demonstrate or will possess when you're at that nanoscale. You know, so for some things, it's, they're much stronger. Um, for some things, it's they react much better. Um, for other things, we get properties that we don't usually think of. So gold, if you've got gold in the macro scale, it's a shiny yellow color. If you have gold spheres at a certain nanoscale, they might be red. But if you have gold prisms, and I'm talking about the gold, the metal, the element prisms at a certain nanoscale might be a totally different color. So this is what, when we're talking about nanotechnology, it's some sort of technology that incorporates something that's leveraging those unique properties. Now I should acknowledge that, and you know, this is one of these important things. There's a lot of instances out there where people will call something nanotech and it's really not nanotech. It's used as a buzzword. So one always needs to be a little bit skeptical of, is this really nanotechnology or is somebody just putting the buzzword on it? 
So let's um, talk a little bit more about how the chemical properties of different um, materials or elements change from the macro to the nanoscale. So I understand that most um, elements exist in nature, like gold, we generally find it at the macro scale, not the nanoscale. So what if you have a substance that you want to get to the nanoscale? How do you get it so small? So it depends, um, you know, for if we're going to continue talking about gold, most of the way we, one would find it in nature, it's actually in a compound. One does not typically, there are a few exceptions, find elements just by themselves. So you have to do some sort of chemical processing, um, which is, is normal when you are extracting any material or any specific element. So in many ways, that's what one needs to do when you're getting nanoscale properties or when you're trying to get nanomaterials. Um, other times it is, how do you process something? What is the process that goes into making it so that instead of getting, you know, we might, we call them macro scale, but this can be things that might be only micrometers. Um, Cause by the time you get to a micrometer, you've lost, that those unique properties at the nanoscale. Um, it's processing, it's the synthesis, it's all these techniques that chemists, chemical engineers uh, can employ to produce what they want. Now I should clarify something that's also that's really important when talking about nanotechnology, is that nanotechnology is not a homogeneous entity. It can be so many different things, and that's part of what sometimes can make it confusing or can make it difficult when you're trying to particularly think about the international security implications, because we have to talk about what kind of nanotechnology are we talking about. There's nanotechnology that's in biology. There's nanotechnology that might specifically be something that is for electronics. So this is why it becomes really important that one, you know, sort of think it through and not just treat it as this all-encompassing term, nanotechnology. Yeah, it's essentially just working with materials at an extremely small scale. And that's why it's so broad and enabling across so many different industries. And so when we Kind of, you know, I think what you're saying is that when we talk about it as nanotechnology, we're like talking about outer space. <laughs> like there's a yes. lot of stuff in outer space. And it's not all the same. Right. And, and actually, ironically, you know, so one of the places, so you see, you see phenomena behave differently at the really small and even smaller than nanoscales when we get to the quantum. Uh, that that's even smaller than nanoscale. If it's a single atom, generally that's not big enough for nanoscale properties. But you also see some really weird stuff happen at really long astronomical distances. So one other um, thing I, I read about nanotechnology, because um, we talked about there being different properties at the extremely small scale, and you even went down to quantum. So weird things happen at quantum, and um, I read that there's a tunability in properties that, that is really phenomenal as well. And I think you talked about the different colors of gold that you can kind of fine tune that based on, 
on how you scale it or organize the nanomaterial. Yes, and while it's easy to sort of convey to, to a broad audience that we can see the color, the fact that they are different colors is because those materials at the different scale, and as you said, tunability, have different electronic properties. So they may react differently to different compounds that they might come in uh, contact with. Um, one might be more efficient or less efficient in terms of uh, conducting an electrical charge. And sometimes it's that tunability that you might either want for a signal um, or you might want it to be something that then it, it impacts further down a, a process or something that you're trying to do. So exactly, that tunability is something that we can get at the nanoscale that you don't have the same capabilities at the macro scale. So one thing I find fascinating about science and knowledge is that all of this has existed since the beginning of time. These, these properties that we could find at the nanoscale have existed, but we are only able to access them now. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the instruments that you would need to both see at the nanoscale, but also work at the nanoscale. So that's, that's a really interesting point. And I'll go back to these gold particles because they in many ways do illustrate um, how nanotechnology, some kinds have been around for, for as long as human beings have been um, on the planet. Um, there's carbon, some carbon uh, soot is actually nanoscale, but back to the gold nanoparticles in the middle ages, some of the colorings that were used on stained glass windows, actually the colorings come because the artists who were making those colors had developed a process, and of course they didn't know this, that was exploiting nanotechnology. So they get some of the compounds at the nanoscale to get the colors. Now, we didn't discover this until, you know, the 2000s when somebody started investigating it. You know, so this question of, you know, how long this has been here is for many nano nanoscale materials, humans have been exposed to them for a very long time. There are others that are brand new. Now back to your question about how do you do this? So most scientific research, most technological research, if you wanted to work at the nanoscale, if you wanted to manipulate specifically, you'd probably use something called a scanning electron microscope that is coupled to a TEM or a transmission electron microscope. So those are very complicated, expensive, delicate instruments. That's one of the most common ways to see or to manipulate. There are other ways that use different instrumentations or use the sort of equipment that you would find in a typical chemistry lab or a chemical engineering lab, electrical engineering lab, physics lab. So one thing that's interesting about these instruments that you just mentioned is because um, I can see people potentially imagining a, a microscope on your table. These are very large instruments. <laughs> yes, they, yes, yes, they are. They're large. And in fact, many of them 
uh, require vibration dampening uh, foundations uh, because you can't have vibrations from say a passing car might be further away than you think um, because when you're at that nanoscale your ability to sort of measure is needs to be so precise so not only do you need to sometimes have vibration dampening, we call them laser tables. They kind of look like um, the monolith from 2001 turned on its side. Um, <laughs> you also will often have uh, clean rooms. Depends on what one's doing, but a requirement for a clean room like is used in the processing of computer chips where you have positive pressures and a control so that you don't have any particles. Right, because those particles are so fine that you'll breathe them in. Well, it's not even so that you breathe them in. I mean, we, one doesn't want to breathe them in. That's the You don't want the particles contaminating what you are working on. Also um, very important. <laughs> at the nanoscale, most things that are at the nanoscale, you actually breathe them in and breathe them right out. Oh, if, okay. If you're breathing them at all. I mean, there's a sweet spot, and we know, that, we know this from uh, the former biological offensive biological weapons programs in the United States. There's a sweet spot for if you want to breathe something in. It's about five to ten microns is where things are uh, inhalable and it lodges in your lungs. If it's too big, it drops out. And that's actually what most of the clean rooms are worried about. It's about stuff that will drop out and drop onto your equipment or your materials. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about nano manufacturing. So let's say I'm a startup company, I want to get into the nanomaterial space, and I want to start working with these materials, so I'll probably have to have a clean room. But how do I go about, what does that nano manufacturing factory look like? Does it look like today's manufacturing factory? Or does it look like something else? Well, again, I'm going to give you a, what is probably not a very satisfying action, answer. It depends. Depends on what you're trying to do. Um, you know, sort of if one was trying to portray a typical uh, nano manufacturing facility, it probably would look most closely or most closely resembled a production facility for microchips. So one of the things that um, is so fascinating about nanotechnology and, and for my audience in general is when we start talking about the really cool things we can do with nanomaterials, it feels like science fiction. So I want to talk about invisibility cloaks. Yes. How does nanotechnology make the, the notion of an invisibility cloak possible? So nanotechnology makes invisibility cloaks possible because they are what are called metamaterials. Um, metamaterials can take on a variety of different forms, but there's a particular type of metamaterials that gives something, and this is where I'm gonna get a little sciency, but we'll pull back from it. Negative I'm putting on my seatbelt now. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> Negative index refraction. And what that means is as light is going past an object, it bends it in such a way that instead of the light showing you or you perceiving there being something, it bends it so that the, excuse me, the nanomaterial bends it, the light, so that it looks like it's going straight. And that's how you get the invisibility. It's bending the light around it. Um, now, 
Currently, metamaterials for invisibility are really cutting edge. This is, the most of it is research sort of in the engineering development or the basic research. We can, we can use nanomaterials, use these metamaterials to hide things at very specific wavelengths. Um, the goal is to be able to, again, as you mentioned, tune it. You know, do we want to do we want to be able to hide and the visible, a part of the visible, the IR, what part of the spec light spectrum do you want to hide it in? Um, so this is the type of work that's being done now, along with work to understand how do you make these metamaterials more robust so they might actually be deployable. There are a couple uh, of the big uh, defense contractors who are starting to try to do some of the more applied development. So we'll be uh, probably seeing some metamaterial invisibility cloaks coming out within the next five years. That is so cool. Well, I actually feature these metamaterials in my second novel, Project Echo, and I've decided that it's not basic research. <laughs> it's actually um, fieldable. And um, so my scientist has developed the first ever prototype invisibility cloak. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, you know, science fiction often precedes reality. <laughs> I forget, I forget what I called it. I called it a nifty, nifty little thing. I'd have to go back. Um, another cool thing, and then I, I read this in an article you recently wrote, um, talk to us about rats with night vision. Ah, yes. So this is what I, you know, can imagine being a way that we get rid of night vision goggles. Instead of requiring these big clunky goggles that actually have a uh, power requirement, nano, specific nano spheres can be injected into the eye. Now this has been done in rats, it hasn't been done in people, so we've got more research to do. Um, these spheres that are sensitive to IR, uh, infrared light, uh, injected into the eyes of rats enabled the rats to have night vision, to see in the dark. Um, so this is, this is really cutting edge research. It's, um, you know, was just published in the last couple years. So it's the demonstrating that this can be done, um, demonstrating how long it lasts because the researchers were smart, one could say, or they were, they were being ethical. You know, these are particles that are biocompatible and they pass out of the rats, so we're not harming, no rats were harmed. <laughs> um, because if you want to make something that people use, it, it has to be biocompatible. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and thinking about this, you know, if we look back to historical analogies, you know, laser keratotomy or, you know, getting the uh, LASIK done on your eyes is a, you know, commercial business these days. That actually started out in the Soviet system. It was radial keratotomy was the way it started out. I mean, somebody literally took a scalpel to your cornea, which Ouch. Kind of makes, it, well, it kind of makes me queak, but yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so that was 19... 
about the 1970s. Yeah, we've, so we for, fast forward 40 years, this is commercial technology. You know, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, you know, is it going to be a commercial technology where people for a short period of time or because they just want to? Um, this is where we start to get into some transhumanism ideas, you know, just elect to go out and, hey, I want to see in the UV or I want to see in IR. Um, you know, so these are some of the, the speculative fictions that one might take this forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, we take our sight for granted. Um, and if you're not a scientist, maybe you don't ask questions about how it is we see and how we see what we see. But I think we hit on it with the invisibility, for one, that if, if no light reflects off of an object, you're not going to see the object. That's why when the light moves around the object, you can't see it. It's invisible. And so... And we talked about the different wa uh, wavelengths on the electromagnetic spectrum. Essentially, our eyes are capable of seeing visible light, but it's not a far-fetched idea that we should be able to see other areas on the spectrum. Yeah, it's, it's rods and cones uh, in your um, eyeballs, for <laughs> lack of a better way to, to put it. Uh, and, you know, some mammals have a third rod that we don't have. Um, and I'm forgetting which are the specific mammals. I want to say maybe no bats don't see it all. No, no I want to say I want to say dogs. Um, bats use sonar. Um, okay, sonar, yeah. Uh, which is a, a different example. They're using sound and, and wavelength. I want to say dogs, but don't quote me on it. Um, okay. That they actually have it's either an additional rod or additional cone that we don't have. So what's interesting about my dogs, um, they see a lot more with smell, and we're getting off topic here, um, but I love dogs, so we're going to talk about it for a minute. Um, dogs are awesome. <laughs> I know. Um, so I was, you know, I walk my dogs every every morning. So first of all, night vision for me would be awesome because I, I walk in the morning and the, and the night, and so I have this like little headlamp. It would be really cool if I could just like take care of all of it with um, night vision. Um, although there's not much to see out here. <laughs> <laughs> that gives off infrared, so maybe that would be a bad idea. Anyway, um, we walk by, by cats regularly who are not moving, and I see them because I'm watching for cats because my dog goes crazy when he sees a cat, um, but my dog usually smells them first, and so if we walk by and the wind is blowing in a certain direction, he smells them after we've walked by, and it's really kind of fascinating. Yeah, that's a you know great example in a very different way, but that we can tie back to nanotechnology, which is humans, we are very sensitive to a few things. I mean, you know, it's like rotten egg smells, so sulfur-containing things, um, but dogs are much both more sensitive and they can discern. So again, looking at how, and this is speculative, you know, using nanomaterials in which you are mimicking this broader range of ability to detect for things like, you know, a, I'm trying to remember the, the an electronic nose. Um, so instead of having to use, for example, a dog to detect landmines, can you use an electronic device? 
because detecting landmines can sometimes be very dangerous and it would be could be very efficient especially if we combine with some of our other technologies like um, unmanned area vehicles or on or unmanned ground vehicles we could hopefully be able to more efficiently detect things like landmines. And this brings us full circle to your startup company and developing sensors and chemical and biological weapons. So let's talk a little bit about how nanotechnology can be used both to enhance chem and bio weapons, but also potentially to help us detect chem and bio. Love to. So one thing that when we're looking at nanotechnology, I'm actually gonna start with the countermeasures. Um, so nanotechnology is one of the areas that has been incorporated into deployed military solutions for chemical and some biological threats. And what it is is the place that it has been used is for decontamination. Nanotechnology, again, because of the properties at the nanoscale, um, it's a, a function of surface area. When you've got something that's a nanoscale, you've got a lot more surface area, so you can use less of something, and it's more efficient to decontaminate. So we've got decontamination capabilities that use nanotechnology that are better, they're more efficient, and some of them can be used for delicate instrumentation um, or are compatible with systems that you might not want to pour bleach over, like, say, you know, a joint strike fighter. <laughs> so, you know, so that's an example of a countermeasure for a chemical and biological threat that's leveraged nanotechnology. Now, when we talk about nanotechnology or nanoweapons, again, that's a huge, huge range of topics. And some of the things that have been developed are, again, exploiting the surface area. So um, the Army has looked into um, using nanomaterials to be incorporated into some conventional munitions because, again, it just helps the explosion be more effective. You need less, less explosives, it's more effective. Um, there were some efforts to use some nanomaterials that give strength looked at using those for like ump, up armored Humvees. Um, and that's kind of like carbon fibers, but instead of carbon fibers at the micro scale, it's where you're using nanofibers that have much greater strength in terms of resisting impacts, but are a whole lot lighter. So those are sort of more conventional examples, but if we're thinking about sort of where might nanotechnology be used to make a weapon, a chemical or a biological weapon, there are a number of different scenarios one might imagine. I do want to ensure that I put in a couple caveats. So first of all, the caveat is none of this has been done as far as I know. These are these are hypothetical scenarios. Everything that I will talk about 
these are things that are technically robust. So I like to say there's nothing from the Journal of Irreproducible Results. <laughs> um, you know, I have references to things like science, nature, Journal of American Chemical Society, um, cell. So these are all things that are derived from the underlying science is real. It's that taking it the next step and it doesn't have, I have no, not operationalized. You know, and there's a big difference between doing something in a lab and actually making an effective weapon. So that's a whole bunch of caveats, but I have to put those out there because I think they're really important. So one example of a nano-enabled weapon would be something in which you use the properties of nanotechnology to evade either our innate immunity, you know, so that natural immunity you have, or our acquired immunity. So an example of that would be if we're looking at anthrax. Right now, anthrax, the way we counter it, one of the ways, is through an anthrax vaccine. Even though there's a great deal of controversy, we've got anthrax vaccine. The anthrax vaccine is designed to respond to a specific protein that the bug that causes anthrax, bacillus anthracis, um, produces when it's in your body. Well, if that particular protein is not present, then, or if that particular protein is somehow concealed, then your body doesn't respond. So one can imagine scenarios, and again, these are hypothetical scenarios, in which one uses single-walled carbon nanotubes, or even multi-walled carbon nanotubes, to inject, and I'm putting that in air quotes, because um, it gets through the cell walls, but inject is not the correct technical word, um, but to get the toxin of anthrax into the cells. So that's one example of a nano-weapon. So it's kind of like cloaking in some ways. Well, you, could, you can imagine it's evading a countermeasure. Um, you can also imagine using a, using a nanomaterial to cover chemical agent or a biological agent so it's not detected by our detection systems. <laughs> that would be cloaking in a very different way than we're talking, we talked about metamaterials. But where you make your chemical agent or your biological agent look like it's innocuous or look like, oh, this is just, you know, an albumin, uh, you know, a very typical protein. Um, albumin is what makes your eggs become eggs. It's um, eggs. You know, so you could, might cover, put a, a nano shell around, particularly a chemical agent, and that way you would evade our detection systems because it wouldn't look like um, what we are, the, it wouldn't have the signatures that we're looking for. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's fascinating. I think you've laid out a number of hypothetical scenarios that, that our audience can take and, and write novels about. Um, but I think one um, kind of existential scenario that I think came up in the 1990s was, are we going to be turned into gray goo when the nanomachines are unleashed on the world? 
Ah, yes, the Grey Goose scenario. Uh, the Grey Goose scenario uh, originated with a theoretical physicist um, named Eric Drexler in his book, Engines of Creation. And at this point, Drexler has actually apologized for ever coining <laughs> that because it proliferated faster than anything else. And, you know, it's, it's to, to defend Drexler, you know, it's partially he was, he's a theoretical physicist and he was, he was suggesting something speculative. This is the danger of giving something a, a, a clever name, you know, so it became great. <laughs> there was gray goo, which if your uh, audience isn't familiar, gray goo is this idea that you have self-replicating nanobots that you can imagine will eat everything on the planet. And so turn the planet into this, what is, was dubbed gray goo. Um, so gray goo proliferated blue goo. And blue goo was, was the goo that was going to uh, disable or disarm. It's kind of the law enforcement nanobots that were going to deal with the gray goo nanobots. And then there's some people <laughs> who proposed green goo. And that was going to be environmentally friendly goo. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> yes, but you still see the gray goo concepts. Um, another author who was writing fiction, uh, Michael Crichton, in his book Swarm. Uh, which is a, you know, a, a fantastic fictional work. Uh, Swarm talks about this sort of shady government research agency that's developing these swarms of nanobots. Well, there are a couple problems with the kind of things that are, are uh, portrayed in, in Swarm. Well, first of all, you have energy issues. Um, if you're <laughs> at the nanoscale, you, you have to figure out how are you going to get energy. Um, and the way most writers or most people who've imagined this talk about, you know, solar. Well, you, again, if you're in the nanoscale, you're only going to absorb so many photons. Um, so you have to deal with the laws of thermodynamics. We can't forget those. <laughs> and then there's this other thing that actually comes from um, engineering, mechanical engineering. It's called Reynolds number. And Reynolds number is what happens when when you move through a fluid. Um, so we're pretty big compared to oxygen molecules or nitrogen <laughs> molecules that are in the air. So we move through air as if it's nothing. Now, if we were the size of a nanobot, trying to move through air, because you're starting to get where you're close in size, Air is, you know, the air molecules are still an, an order of magnitude smaller, but you're closer. But if, if we were the size of nanobots and we're trying to move through air or trying to, you know, fly through air in a swarm, it would be like you and I trying to swim in a pool of molasses. Mm -hmm. So when people say, you know, how do you avoid a swarm of nanobots, you know, my uh, quippish or my sarcastic response is you walk faster. <laughs> Um, That's good. And, and, but there's a more important piece here, which is there are different threats 
that we should be looking at. And we, whether that is writers who are portraying these things to bring them into the public attention, or it's, you know, academic researchers that are trying to understand the nature of these threats, or if it's policymakers who are, you know, looking or who are in the Department of Defense trying to assess what are the, the threats for um, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, is that when we, we need to assess which threats are real. You know, perhaps the writers, you know, can get away with a little bit more, um, but particularly when we're talking about policymakers, when we're talking about people who have influence because of their technical credibility, whether that be technical scientific or technical in the policy realm, that it's important that we highlight how complicated these systems are and highlight how gray goo is not a threat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been uh, so fascinating um, to, to talk to you about nanotechnology. So if listeners want to come and find a, a little bit more about you and your work, where should they best go? Do you have a website link you can give them? Um, so probably the best way to find out more about what I do um, would be to go to the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech at our website and uh, search for me. Um, so you mentioned my uh, book, Nanotechnology for Chemical and Biological Defense. Thank you. Um, I also had another book come out in um, just this past October um, on disruptive and game-changing technologies in modern warfare. Um, so talk about a few of the things that we talked about, the metamaterials in there. Um, also talk about some things like gene editing, CRISPR, machine learning, a variety of different emerging technologies. Well, thank you so much. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you. Really appreciated it and uh, hope that uh, your audience finds it to be uh, an interesting topic. I'm sure they will. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.